Good morning, Bethel. Hey, we're really glad that you have chosen to join us uh, this morning. Uh, we're picking up with a long-standing tradition here at Bethel Church for as far back as I can remember, uh, and I've been going to this church since I was a kid. Uh, as we get towards Christmas, we light the Advent candles in a preparation of celebrating ultimately the Christ candle that we will light on Christmas Eve. Uh, the first candle that we're going to light today is going to be the prophecy candle. And it, it symbolizes hope that is given to us in, in the future Messiah. Uh, and one of the verses from the sermon that we're going to look at later, it's not actually going to be highlighted in chapter 28 of Isaiah, verse 16. It says this, it's this great prophetic word. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who relies on it will not be stricken with panic. You see the cornerstone here, and, and in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus grabs this term, this cornerstone, and uses it for himself. Matthew 21, verse 42, and Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, see, in that section, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, but he also grabs this same term that Isaiah uses here about the cornerstone. There is a... Hello, Bethel. It's Pastor Mark here, and I am excited to get to dive into God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I'm hopeful that you have found some opportunities uh, this week to give thanks to God. Uh, this has certainly uh, been a year that has carried with it its share of burdens and frustrations, uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't still have things to be thankful for. Uh, as you read your Bible, you'll find that a, a heart of thankfulness is an instruction from God to Christians and not merely a suggestion. Uh, even as Jesus was knowingly on his way to the cross, uh, as he ate his last meal with his disciples, we're told that he paused to give thanks. Uh, so I would say that life is certainly challenging uh, right now, but nothing in comparison to the burden that Jesus was carrying in that moment. And if he could be thankful, well, then so can we. Uh, before we get started with today's uh, sermon, I would like you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I am I'm thankful that you have given us your word to instruct us and to guide us. I find myself regularly praying for wisdom as we navigate the world that we currently find ourselves in. Lord, I do pray that your word would be a, a lamp for our feet and a light for our path as we walk out the life that stretches in front of each and every one of us. Lord, help us to grow deeper in our love for you as we hear from your word this morning. Amen. Well, I think it's safe to say that we live in a fairly polarized world. Uh, I don't think that I have to convince you of that. And if you weren't aware of that, then I would like to come and hang out where you are right now, because that sounds rather peaceful. Uh, I know that we can come up with a, a whole spectrum of, of political opinions that divide people quite passionately. That's easy to do. But sort of move beyond just, just thoughts and opinions that I think that in our very nature, most of us can be divided up into two very different groups of people. I don't know if it's a, an exact 50-50 split, but I think that it's fairly close. And it may sound overly simplified, but I think that most of us can be divided up this way. There are those of us that can learn from the wisdom and experiences of others, and there are those of us that need to see just how hot the stove is are for ourselves, even if we've been adequately warned. Uh, 
Now think about that for just a minute. Think about yourself. Which side uh, would you consider yourself to be on? Maybe look around the room if you're watching this with others. Feel free to pause the video and discuss who is who. This could be fun or not. Uh, Don't forget to unpause the video and come back after you're done accusing each other. Think about your family. Think about your siblings. Think about your children. Some people just need a a good rule, a, a good boundary. Tell me how far to go and I won't go any further. And well, then there's the other people. And I will admit, I often find myself living in the other camp. I'm a touch the stove kind of guy. Uh, Growing up in Fairbanks, my parents would would sort of hand me the keys to the car and tell me to drive carefully because it's slick out there. I mean, but but what truly constitutes carefully? Uh, How was I to know what carefully was if I hadn't first established what carelessly was, right? And I can't be the only one that thinks this way. Now, after a a few adventures of, of getting my car out of the ditch, Uh, I did learn through trial and error and and came away with a better understanding of what careful driving truly is. Some people have the ability to to learn those lessons from from the wisdom and the experience of others. And there are those like myself that that had to learn a lot of hard lessons through the teacher of my own experience. Oh, how I wished I had displayed the wisdom to learn from others and not just firsthand. We're in Isaiah this morning, and we're going to be covering a pretty large section today. We're picking up in Isaiah chapter 28, and we'll be covering through chapter 35. And Isaiah in this section is going to offer up seven woes of warning to the people of Judah about God's coming judgment. And I'm titling today's sermon, Okay, Here We Woe Again, because this isn't our first time addressing and dealing with woes in the book of Isaiah. Now, I'm not usually a pun guy. That's not typically my type of humor, uh, but I do know that my mom is watching. So mom, there's an early Christmas present just for you. Uh, If we step back and kind of look at this eight chapter section that we're covering this morning, from a big picture point of view, I think we're sort of presented with two uh, options. Judah is presented with two options. They can learn from the, the hardships of discipline that their neighbors of the North are going to experience, or they can learn those same lessons through their own hardships at the end of the result of the choices of their own making. Which one do you think that Judah is going to choose today? Well, let's look what it says in chapter 28. Judah is warned about the destruction of others. Says this picking up in verse one, woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. Woe to you, Ephraim, used here sort of as a, as a nickname for Northern Israel. You aren't on a good path and judgment is coming. Isaiah has some sharp criticism for their leaders picking up in verse seven. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets, prophets stagger from beer and they are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. 
All the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. Now these verses are describing their spiritual leaders. It says what comes out of their mouths is gross and disgusting on a variety of levels. They recklessly abuse alcohol and it's symbolic of the fact that they have let sin run rampant in their lives. Sin has its grip on the hearts of the leaders and the people seem to have gladly followed that lead. Now, sometimes we can go astray because we don't know any better, but that certainly wasn't the case here. They did have some priests and prophets that were, were trying to direct their hearts back to God, but the people did not want to listen. Verse nine, who is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. Now, Isaiah kind of puts this in quotes, acknowledging that this is sort of the people's response to those that were trying to teach them to follow God. And the quote that we see here, this do this, do that, uh, it can also be translated into nonsense sounds. Uh, If you were describing perhaps a, a bad or a boring teacher, you might describe their lesson as sort of blah, 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 blah. That's kind of the idea here. This was their general response to the instructions from God. Verse 11, very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backwards. They will be injured and snared and captured. Isaiah says, you think that this sounds like gibberish now? If you won't listen to your own teachers pointing you back to God, then you can listen to new teachers with strange tongues. You can get conquered and you can listen to them instead. See if you find that any more understandable and to your liking. In the next section, we see they continue to disregard God's instruction. And Isaiah then goes on to to appeal to to the wisdom that God has placed in the framework of the world. He points to things that farmers have learned and farmers, things that they do naturally, uh, plowing, sowing, harvesting. Verse 23, listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continuously? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant wheat in its place and barley in its plot and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge, and nor is the wheel of a cart rolled over cumin. Caraway is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. The wheels of a threshing cart may be rolled over it, but one does not use horses to grind grain. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. So we see that they were going to disregard God's wisdom. There are some things that work and there are some things that don't. The farmer doesn't just plow forever. He has to eventually stop and and sow the seed. There's a sensible time to start and a sensible time to stop. And then when it's all done and they're harvesting, there's a proper way to thresh the grain and there's a way that doesn't work. Farmers use their time doing things that re- the right way because that's what leads to results. Wisdom is seeing what works 
and doing that more and seeing what doesn't work and doing that less. These farmers here don't have master's degrees from, in agricultural from leading Israeli universities. They have common sense and experience. You can hear Isaiah almost asking them, where do you think common sense comes from? Did you create it? If even the farmer in all of his simplicity can figure out what to do and what not to do, why can't the rest of you demonstrate that same kind of common sense? But we'll see the hubris and the foolishness and the self-centeredness of the northern kingdom is going to insist on living how they want. They'll continue to push back against God's revealed wisdom. They, they want to chart their own course when God is offering to guide them. They want to touch the stove after God has warned them how badly they'll be burned. And then they want to go and burn themselves again and then go back one more time because they don't think it will burn them again this time. God is saying loud and clear the path that they are on leads to destruction. Now, from our vantage point, we can look back historically and, and see this ignored warning from God eventually did lead to the destruction of the northern kingdom when they were devastated by Assyria. But there's an order of operations to how this all plays out. The northern kingdom falls first, and Judah in the south is going to have a, a front row seat to watch this all play out. They get to see how it goes down and see how they want to respond. Isaiah is going to challenge them to learn from their neighbors to the north, to use their example as a teachable moment to head off their own destruction. We'll see in the next section that Judah needs to take that warning to heart. Can Judah learn that, or do they need to touch the stove too? Are they any more willing to listen to God's wisdom from the prophet Isaiah? I think it's, it's fairly common uh, to truly not feel the weight of something until it, it impacts you personally. Uh, Harry S. Truman has a famous economic quote that says this, it's a recession when your neighbor loses his job. It's a depression when you lose yours. Now, it, it's sad when someone else loses their job, but it is catastrophic when you lose yours. We're not always great about learning from the hardships of others, and Judah is going to prove to be no different. Chapter 29, picking up in verse 13, it says this, The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder, the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. Who do, you, who do their work in darkness and think? Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Sort of at best, it's half-hearted worship. At its worst, it's just outright pretending. Uh, that, that They'll pretend to love God. They'll pretend to do things the right way. Sort of the idea, I can keep up a, a good front on the outside. I can sort of follow all the rules while people are watching, but I don't really have to change my heart. We can keep doing this. God will never see. And well, let's be honest, who of us hasn't thought at some moment, I, I'm smarter than God. And I'll, I'll raise my hand to that one. I, I've thought that. I, I doubt I'm alone. 
These, these plans, these schemes make so much sense kind of in our own heads, but in reality, it makes as much sense as the clay trying to boss around the potter that is molding it. Now, I don't have much clay working experience. I would not refer to myself as a pottery enthusiast, but I can say that if a lump of clay started talking back to me and telling me how it should be molded very quickly, that lump of clay would find itself in the trash. Now, it is by God's grace that that isn't God's instant reaction to our rebellion. But as with his warning for Judah, it won't be long before uh, that his judgment is, is laid on them. Isaiah continues to warn the people to turn from the path that they are headed down, but the people don't want to hear it. Chapter 30, verse 8, go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll for the days to come. It may be an everlasting witness for these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. It says they aren't learning. They don't want to learn. They don't want to change. Verse 10, they say to the seers, see no more. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. You see, the people are sick of hearing about the doom and gloom. We don't want to hear about the consequences of sin anymore. Tell us good stuff. Stop telling us how bad we are. Tell us how great we are. And I think you see the, this sinful desire that gives rise to, to dangerous and false philosophies like the prosperity gospel. Sort of what can God do for me? He only exists to bless me. Don't make such a big deal about sin. God is all about grace and love. And don't you know how special you are and how lucky God is to have you? See, these dangerous and self-centered beliefs aren't just a 21st century problem. But if this is their heart, if this is what they think, how will God respond to this? Chapter 30, picking up in verse 12. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit, the sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This isn't sustainable, God says. He won't sit idly by and watch this play out forever. Sin has this way of, of building to a breaking point, adding it more pressure and then like a wall with a crack that gives way in an instant. But Judah... They're not worried. Judah has a plan. Chapter 31 and 32, we see that Judah makes this plan to rescue themselves. We don't need God. We've got Egypt, they say, and they've got horses. Like if somebody would have just had the courage to say this plan out loud so someone else in the room would have been smart enough to go, wait, really? That's our plan? Chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he, is too, he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. 
But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. Isaiah is warning them, it's not too late. We can turn this thing around. It doesn't have to be this way. But then you see the response of the people and they say, nah, no, no, no. We've made an alliance with Egypt. They will have our backs. If another nation comes and tries to conquer us, Egypt will come and rescue us. They've got horses and chariots. We've gotten over that whole enslaving thing. We've put that in the past. They're good guys now. Isaiah is telling them, hard times are coming. Is the thing that you're counting on really up to the task of rescuing you? He asks, where do you place your trust? Where do you place your confidence? Now, this chapter isn't written directly to you and to I, but, but we can find ourselves asking a lot of those same questions. When we face uncertainty in our lives, where do we place our confidence? Who are we expecting to come to our rescue? Is, is our certainty based in our own cleverness? Now, I know that this can be one of my temptations. I'm smart enough to, to figure my way out of this. I don't need to bother God with this. It prompts us to ask, it's kind of what is my equivalent in my life of an alliance with Egypt? Where have I placed my security and my confidence outside of God? Will those things truly stand the trials of life? The point that Isaiah is going to try to drive home in these last three chapters, and we're going to look at it this morning, is that rescue is found in God alone. Now, as I studied this week and I found the first part that we've looked at this morning fairly depressing. It really lacks a certain holiday cheer. A drunk nation with drunk leaders, prophecies of destruction, the same mistakes being made over and over again, disingenuous worship, sin hidden now coming to light, people unwilling to listen to God's wisdom and God's warning, areas of false security proving insufficient and being exposed. But starting in chapter 33, Isaiah lifts his eyes and he lifts our eyes to the horizon. He sees a time of eventual rescue for Judah, but also this bigger picture of God's rescue for those who trust in him for the ultimate rescue. Again, here we're going to see the near and the not yet being mingled. This chapter is a hope offered to Judah, but also to us. Now look at some of the beautiful things that Isaiah says here. In chapter 33, verse 2, Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in times of distress. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. You plunder, O nations. Sorry, your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, people pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Jumping ahead, verse 15. Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil, they are the ones who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied and water will not fail them. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and, a, and view a land that stretches far. One last verse, jump to 22. For the Lord is our judge and the Lord is our lawgiver and the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. 
It can be really hard to take some of these words of encouragement to heart at times. We live in a world that is so devastated by sin and corruption that it just continually disappoints. But there's this really cool picture, if you just pause for a second in in verse 22 and, and look at it. It says, the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, our king. Sound familiar? When the world is truly made right, God will serve as our judicial branch, our legislative branch, and our executive branch. What a beautiful picture of a government that we can truly depend on. Now, God is speaking into the the day-to-day of Judah, but he's also speaking to all of mankind in this section. And God just doesn't focus on the relief uh, of day-to-day earthly trials here, but he also promises a much better rescue for his children. And Isaiah points us to the ultimate rescue as he closes out chapter 35. Chapter 35, verse 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Because see, even at its best, this world will disappoint. Even at its best, we are still left with a case of righteous discontent. Because see, sin has broken this world, and it is continuing to break this world. And it has broken, and it will continue to break each and every one of us until Jesus comes back. This world is hurting because of sin. The eyes that were created to see the glory of God's creation are blind. And legs that were designed to run and to dance find themselves lame. And tongues that were meant to sing praises to the Lord are muted. And lives that were meant to be lived to their fullest are cut heartbreakingly short. See, this world being as good as it gets and all we have is an incredibly depressing thought. Because this world is broken. Because I am broken. But God in his love doesn't let this brokenness be the end of the story. And Isaiah points to this beautiful hope that we can all have as we see with our eyes a new heaven and a new earth. We see Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, pick up this same theme, Romans chapter 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as if the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. See, he points to the same hope that Isaiah is pointing us at this morning. And it's tempting at times, just throw our hands up and give up and be done and and to not care anymore. But God is our rescuer now, and God is our eternal rescuer. Now, if you felt short of things to be thankful for this past week, I would point you to that. I wanted to close with rereading Isaiah 33, verse 6. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and a wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Walk in his wisdom as you live out this week. Bethel, we love you. We miss you. God bless you.